All right, Jonah chapter 2 is where we are today, and I want to read the whole uh, passage. Last week, if you missed it, just a quick recap in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah heard God's call to go preach to Nineveh, rejected it, ran from God in the opposite direction. A great storm uh, came upon the boat that he was in. He was thrown into the ocean and swallowed up by a great fish. And chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer to God from the belly of that fish. Let's read it together. Uh, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord, verse 10, spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, the, um, the encounter that Jonah had with you, to me, is an encounter that we need often. And so I pray that as we look into your word today, by your spirit, you'd refresh us in your grace, just as you were refreshing Jonah, trying to teach this man who was living out of step with your nature and character. And so, Lord, our heart, our desire as your people is to not just know who you are and to be correct about it, but then to live out the nature that is revealed to us in your word. So, Lord, we pray that you'd help us with that, strengthen us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, in last week's study of the book of Jonah, one of the things that I uh, said to you at the very beginning is that there's not a lot of background material in the Bible about the prophet Jonah. Very little is said of him in some of the books of the Old Testament that you might expect to hear about a prophet. Books like 1 and 2 Kings or 1 and 2 Chronicles, uh, where other prophets and what they did is spoken of. Jonah really isn't mentioned there very often, except for one time. In 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah appears to the king of Israel at the time named Jehoshaphat, and he tells him that God is going to restore the borders in Israel. Okay, so what that means is that before the events of the book of Jonah, uh, Jonah, as a prophet, was known as a man with a positive message for God's people. Now, what we saw last week in Jonah chapter 1 is that Jonah was tasked in the book of Jonah with a negative message for people who did not belong to God. He was 
told by God to go 500 miles or over 500 miles away from Israel to Assyria's capital city, the city of Nineveh, and to preach against them a word of judgment because their evil had come up to God. He was conscious of their evil. He wanted it to be dealt with and addressed. But Jonah, as we saw last week, he did not want to go to Nineveh. And in the final chapter of the book of Jonah, as we saw last week, he told God the reason why he didn't want to go. He knew that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And he thought, if God is that, and if he's sending me to Nineveh, he's not just telling me to cry out against them from far away, he's actually sending me to their town, then it probably means that he's open to disposing his grace and mercy and patience and loving kindness on the Ninevites. They might just repent as a result of my preaching and come into God's grace and mercy, and Jonah did not like that. Uh, He despised the people of Assyria. He despised the Ninevite people. He thought of himself and his people as good, and he thought of them and their people as bad, and he did not want to cross those boundaries that had been firmly fixed in his mind. And as I said to you last week, Jonah to me was like a train car unhitched from the locomotive. There's God's nature, the locomotive, who God is, and Jonah is disconnected from that. God is going to Nineveh. God has a heart. God has a perspective, but Jonah has disconnected himself from it. He won't go where God is going to go. Jonah needed to reconnect with God's grace, and that's what the book of Jonah is about. God's goal for Jonah was that he would comprehend who God is and that he would connect to it, that he would know of God's grace and that he would connect to it. And God has the same goal for us in the book of Jonah. He wants us to know of his grace and to live accordingly. Okay, but what is the grace of God? One one theologian said it this way. I'll put it up on the screen for you. The grace of God is God's goodness manifested toward the ill-deserving. Grace of God is God's goodness manifested toward the ill-deserving. In this chapter, Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is the ill-deserving figure. He does not deserve God's rescue. He does not deserve this fish. He does not deserve a second chance. He does not deserve any of these things, but God is going to extend his grace to his man. The goodness of God manifested toward the ill-deserving. Another set of authors said it this way, actually in a parenting book. They said, grace is not a novel, fail-safe catchphrase that will ensure success. No, it's something so much better than that. It is God's assured, favorable attitude towards undeserving rebels whom, in his inscrutable love, he has decided to bless. That's a great description of what Jonah is about to experience. He is an undeserving rebel. And God, in his inscrutable love, decides to bless this man. So God's mission was to hitch Jonah up to his grace once again. He needed Jonah to reconnect to his nature. And as I've been saying, he wants the same for us right now and as we study this book. He doesn't want us to merely have a correct 
theology about him. Any of us could probably pass a basic theological exam about God. What, what does the Bible say about who God is? Jonah had that. He could pass that exam, but God wants us to do more than that. He wants us to live out the implications of his nature. If God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, he wants us to demonstrate the same to our world. Okay, so God will do for us what he did to Jonah, uh, right there in the midst of the sea. He'll reach us wherever we're at to teach us, to remind us, to inform us about his grace. All right, so that's what I wanna think about today. What do we learn about God and how he extends his grace? What do we learn about his grace from this prayer from Jonah? Now, to, to say this to you today, uh, one of the things that needs to happen right at the, at the, at the outset is we need to get kind of a cartoonish image of how this all worked out of our heads. You know, it's like we've all seen like kids' cartoons about the life of Jonah. So we might be imagining like there's a boat out there on the Mediterranean. Maybe there's even like blue skies and some clouds and just a little bit of rain fluttering in the distance. And we might imagine Jonah kind of going out to the edge of the boat and like doing a perfect dive out into the ocean. And there's like a big whale that's there just with its mouth wide open. And Jonah just, bloom, just goes right into it or something like that. We got to get that out of our minds. What we have to picture is a man who is desperately clinging to life at this moment. He is confident at the very beginning of this song that he is going to die. He's drowning, he might not even know how to swim, and he's in one of the worst storms that these sailors have ever seen in all of their years on those waters. He believes that he is going to die. It's as if in Psalm 2, everything else fades away. Last week, we were on the boat. We were with the sailors. We were thinking about a fish. We were watching the storm. All of that fades away. Now we just have Jonah, a man who thinks he's dying, and his thoughts, his prayers, what he thinks about God. And I think what we'll discover along with Jonah is that God's grace was right there with Jonah in the depths of the ocean, in the depths of that great fish. Uh, he prays this prayer. It's poetry. It's the only uh, uh, time that poetry appears in the book of Jonah. Uh, it's not something that he pulled out a scroll and began to write right there. He prayed something like this and then later would have written this prayer. But it's a song of God's grace. It's about God's salvation. Okay, so let's inspect uh, this song for what we can learn about God's grace. The first point that I want to make is that God's grace can be found in the dark. God's grace can be found in the dark. Uh, I didn't want to say that God's grace is only found in the dark uh, because it's not. It's found in the places of blessing and beauty throughout our world, the good times in life. And it's not always found in the dark either because there are times we enter into the dark and our hearts aren't opened up to the Lord. But it can be, as Jonah discovered, found in the dark. When he was cast into the sea, he was thrown into the chaos of darkness. In verse two and three, he said that he was in distress because he was cast into the deep. In verse three through five, he spoke of waves and billows and waters that closed over him, he said, to take his life. And in verse six, 
he felt like he was at the very bottom of the mountain, or of the, the ocean, the roots of the mountains, he said, with bars that he thought were closing in on him forever. Now, when you read the book of Jonah, it's like it's hard not to smirk a little bit at this man and the experience of his life, but this was no laughing matter to Jonah. This is not comedy at all to this man. He was in the disorienting experience of drowning and dying before being swallowed by a sea creature. I don't think a lot of us have the experience in life to be able to even imagine how stressed Jonah's system would have been. Perhaps somebody who's been in the midst of the chaos of war might have a little bit of the feeling that Jonah was having in that moment. I read of one study this last week that was done in the 50s that they conducted to try to determine why United States prisoners of war in the 50s were being turned against the United States while they were imprisoned. What they discovered was that the enemy was using a tactic of putting them in total darkness. And so to understand it, one psychologist took volunteers and put them into sensory isolation. Uh, he put them in small, soundproofed cells. He made them wear frosted goggles so they could see but not really see clearly. And he even put gloves on them, special gloves that would decrease their sense of touch. And the results were shocking to those researchers. The subjects were completely disoriented within just a few hours. When some of them went to take a bathroom break, they would get lost in the bathroom. Goggles off, everything normal, they would get lost. They couldn't even get out of the bathroom. One of them, after completing the assignment, was released, got in his car, and just crashed in the parking lot. And all of them, most of them, saw hallucinations. Uh, they saw things like squirrels dancing around, an old man driving a bathtub. One subject even saw a second version of himself and had a difficult time differentiating between who was real and who was an image. It seemed that without the normal stream of input, each subject's brain produced its own stream of input. And I just trying to share that story to kind of help you understand the gravity of what Jonah was experiencing there in the belly of the fish. I think that his senses were being pushed to the limits. And as his senses were submerged under the water or in the sliminess of that fish, it seems that his spiritual senses began to arise. The man who didn't even think about God when he was on the boat began to realize his deep need for God. It's like there in the water and in that fish, Jonah was stripped of everything but God. He had no one else, nothing else. It was just him and God alone. He even described this moment like death. He said, I was in Sheol, he said in verse two. That's the Old Testament place of the dead. But in the midst of that darkness, the light of God began to shine. He began to realize God is with me. God has rescued me. God has saved me. I think this is why at the end of his song, Jonah prayed this beautiful line. He said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's what he said in verse eight. 
Now, when Jonah said that, personally, I don't think that he was referring to the sailors on the boat who used to sacrifice to idols. I don't think he was referring to the Ninevites that he was going to go to who did sacrifice to idols. I think that Jonah was thinking about himself. I think he realized that God's steadfast love was toward him, for him, but that he had made an idol of his perspectives. He had made an idol of his positions. He had made an idol of his identity as a man against the Ninevites. Because he'd set that idol in his heart, the steadfast love of God, that's a word that is loaded in the Old Testament and describes the people of God, what they're supposed to receive from God. The steadfast love of God was blocked from Jonah. He couldn't experience it. It's not that God didn't have it. It's that Jonah had removed himself from it, so to speak, experientially because of the idol's within his heart. And God was doing everything he could in this moment to destroy those idols from within Jonah. The first of the 10 commandments says, you shall have no other gods before me. Tim Keller describes idolatry this way. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant. Then I'll feel secure. And I think down there in that fish, Jonah came to terms with his worship. He realized that his opposition against the Ninevites and people like the Ninevites was what made him feel secure. It had become his functional God. And he realized that he thought of his hatred of the Ninevites as more core to who he was, his identity, than his connection to God. And as he began to realize this, the steadfast love of God began to break into his heart. God stripped away Jonah's idols and showed him how foolish they were and how little they could do for him. And he began to see God again. Sometimes God will do this. Sometimes God will allow darkness to come into our lives so that we can recognize afresh the value of God, how valuable he truly is, how important he truly is to us. I read a story recently, I think in the last year or two, that interested me. It was about a woman named Laura Young, who one day in Austin, Texas, she walked into her local Goodwill. Uh, She's an antique collector. She knew a thing or two about Uh, things from history. And as she was shopping the aisles, she looked and saw this uh, statue, uh, just a bust, and looked at the price. It was $35. And she began inspecting it, and she realized this is not new. This This is an old piece. She thought to herself, I think it's probably at least a thousand years old. She knew that it was very valuable, much more valuable than $35. So she did what any of us would do. She bought it for $35. And she walked out of that store and then began the process of getting it verified. And they discovered that it was 2,000 years old. It was actually a bust of the man who is said to have assassinated Julius Caesar. So she did a 
good thing at that point. She didn't sell it, but she donated it to a museum where now everybody can appreciate its value. This was a moment in Jonah's life where what was really valuable was coming to the surface. He had devalued God and highly valued his perspective about those Ninevites, but God was changing that in this moment. Jonah in the belly of the fish, seeing reality. So grace can be found in the dark. But I also wanna say, secondly, that grace illuminates us without crushing us. Grace illuminates us without crushing us. What what do I mean? Well, through the whole song, it's clear that Jonah understood that God was responsible for the different elements that had been brought against him. We as the readers know that. We know that God brought the storm, that God brought the fish, that God calmed the storm, uh, that God directed the casting of lots, you know. We, we know and can see God's hand in the events surrounding Jonah's life. But during this song, Jonah recognized it as well. Look at verse three with me. He said to God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now, what I want to point out about that is not only that Jonah recognized that all this had come from God, but I also want to point out that Jonah is not positioning himself, it seems, in an argument against God. In other words, you got to get the tone right of how he said verse 3. It wasn't, God, I can't believe that you have done this to me. I can't believe that you have let this come into my life. No, it was God, I've deserved this. I am that rebel who has been running from you, and so you graciously brought this into my life. Jonah, in other words, it seems, realized that he had all this coming to him. He sensed the gravity, perhaps for the first time, of his own personal rebellion, his own personal sin. This hard-hearted prophet who thought that he knew better than God was now being softened by God's grace. That's what I mean. He had an illumination of himself, but he wasn't crushed. He's still going to God. He knows that he deserves this discipline, but he realized that this was God's discipline, and it was also God's rescue. That if God wanted to end Jonah, he could have done that just as easily as he saved Jonah. The storm and the sea and the fish were all uncomfortable for this man, but he knew that they were necessary vehicles that God was using to drive Jonah right back into his loving arms. And as a result, Jonah began to hope in the middle of this song. In verse four and in verse seven, he tells God twice, I'm gonna go back to your temple. Now he was a long way from the temple at this point. He's in the belly of a fish out in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean. If you're a prophet, where do you want to be? If you're a prophet of Israel, prophet of God in ancient Israel, where do you want to be? You want to be at the temple. It might have even been that he had been at the temple when God said, Jonah, I'm telling you to go to Nineveh, that huge city, and say to it, against it, what I proclaim to you. But Jonah now is saying from the belly of the fish, God, I'm going back to that very place from which I came. 
You are here with me right in the belly of this fish, and I'm going to go back to your holy place. And I think what's happening here is that Jonah's self-righteousness was evaporating at this moment. God was birthing a new thing inside the prophet. It was an imperfect thing, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but he was birthing a new thing within his prophet. In fact, some scholars even point out that throughout this song, Jonah mixes up the gender of the fish. On the bookends of the song, he speaks of the fish as male, but at the beginning of the song, he speaks of the fish as female. And a lot of people think that the reason that Jonah did that is because he's saying, it's like this fish is pregnant with me, and I am going to be reborn at some point because God is doing a new work in me right here in this dark place. Jerry Bridges once wrote it this way. He said, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. That's the Christian perspective. God upholds us when we're at our worst. In the dark, illuminated by God, we are not crushed by God because Jesus was crushed for us. Now, you have to contrast this with some of the modern thoughts that we often have or that our flesh might have. There's a little book that gives an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, William McCraven wrote a great book. I really loved it called Make Your Bed. I think it was based off of a speech he gave to the University of Texas. Uh, But at one point, he said, we will all confront a dark moment in our life. In that dark moment, reach deep inside yourself and be your very best. All right, I get the sentiment. I even kind of, to some degree, like the sentiment. But what do we do when we are the cause of the dark moment? That was Jonah's issue. He looked within and realized there's nothing good there. What do you do in that moment? It's there that we must know that we are not beyond the reach of God's grace. I can't say that enough. You're not beyond the reach of God's grace. You are not the singular case that has gone further than God has ever experienced. You know, like looking at your life and going, wow, we we got a real doozy here. We don't know what to do. That's not God. Within his triunity, he's seen it all. You're not beyond his grace. If Jonah shows us nothing else, he shows us a God who does not give up on his people. He keeps reaching out to those who belong to him. Okay, let me conclude with one last element of God's grace that I want you to see today, and it's this. God's grace produces a beautiful response. God's grace produces a beautiful response. This, to me, is a framework for the Christian life that many believers are missing today. Okay, when God's grace truly impacts your heart, when you you really begin to understand just a degree, because I don't think on this side of eternity we'll ever comprehend it fully, but when we just begin to understand to a degree the, the favor of God towards his undeserving people, when we begin to understand that, to begin to comprehend that, when we begin to realize the magnitude of his mercy and kindness towards us, we can't help but respond in a certain way. 
I'm firmly convinced by this. I'm convinced by the idea that an understanding of God's grace, no matter how small that understanding of that magnificent grace is, I believe that it can have major results in a Christian's life. I believe that human life becomes most human when it's lived in the light of God's grace. Grace produces, in other words. That's a major reason why we even have the vision statement, Jesus famous here in this church. Jesus is the one who brought God's grace. His cross gave God's grace access to us. Like a, like a dam blown up with dynamite so that the old river can flow again, Christ's cross blew up sin so that the obstacle of God's grace Sin could be removed and his grace could flow towards us once again. And the more appreciative of that you become, the more Jesus becomes famous to you, the more grace-driven you will become. It will have results in your life. Grace will produce. Uh, to illustrate what I'm talking about from Scripture, I'll point you to Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. It's a longer quotation, so just track with it. He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So God's grace has come. And it, he says, teaches us. So grace teaches us. What does it teach us? To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is an age, Paul says, uh, that where we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that God's grace is the thing that best teaches us to live holy lives. Not uh, fear, not worry, not panic, not pride, not legalism, not guilt, not shame. The best mechanism for teaching us to be a people who are zealous for good works is a comprehension of God's grace. Because when you get it, you never respond. People who respond this way don't get God's grace. When you, when you respond with, oh, that's grace, so I can do whatever I want, you don't get God's grace. When you get it, you say, I can't believe that he would do that for me. What in the world can I do for him? Okay, This is what God's grace does. It's a concept that I've wanted to have color this pulpit. That's why I hand wrote these verses from Titus 2 on the floorboard beneath the pulpit when we built this stage. As God's grace is taught, we will respond in the best of ways. So how did Jonah respond? Okay, I'm, I'm saying that, that grace produces a beautiful response. What, how did Jonah respond? Well, he renewed his relationship with God. You see that all throughout this song, right? He's calling out to God. He's interacting with God. He's speaking with God. In chapter one, he's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's what he said to the sailors. Now, he wants to talk with God. He wants to engage with God. He wants to relate to God. He wants to go back to God's temple. But he didn't stop with prayer. 
he went on to devote himself to God afresh. He said in verse 9, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Uh, Jonah was saying, I'm going to go back to the temple. I'm going to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, but it will be more than just a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It will be me making a vow where I'm dedicating afresh my life to you, God. And perhaps you've had a moment like that where you become conscious of his grace, mercy, love, forgiveness in some new facet or wrinkle of your life, and, you're, and you want to say to him, God, I want to recommit and give my life to you for what you've done for me. That's what Jonah was doing, a prayer of dedication. Now, we don't offer animal sacrifices to do this kind of dedicating. We offer instead ourselves as living sacrifices Pastor Jeff actually read this earlier in our worship service this morning from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I'll read it from the New Living Translation. Paul said, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. That's what Jonah did. He spoke of sacrifices in the temple, but his life was going to be a sacrifice also. He knew that his commitment to God, he knew that his vow was gonna require him to go minister to a Ninevite people that he was very uncomfortable around, that, that made him squirm, but he believed, I need to do it because God is who God says he is. He knew it cost him, but God's grace drove him back into devotion to God. But Jonah also responded to God's grace with a really beautiful shout of praise at the very end of the song. It's kind of the pinnacle of the song, the crescendo of the song. It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It was a statement of recognition on one hand. Jonah's just saying like, hey, you've been saving everybody in this story, God. You saved the sailors You've saved me, and you're probably going to save the Ninevites. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But it wasn't just a statement of recognition. It was a statement of submission. What Jonah is saying is, God, you can give salvation to whoever you want to. I have been trying to act like the little arbiter of salvation. I've been trying to act like the one who says, no, the Israelites get it but not the wicked Ninevites. Surely they're outside the scope of God's saving grace. But here he's saying, God, I submit to you. You decide. But it was also, if we're being honest, a statement that was intermixed with a lot of tension. Some of us might even be feeling a little funky right now because here we read of Jonah in the fish, singing a song, praying a prayer of dedication and saying, God, you can save whoever you want to save. You can reach into lives that I've deemed too evil for your grace. You can rescue anyone, but we know that this is not really the attitude he had at the end of the book of Jonah. He's pictured arguing with God. He's pictured frustrated when a whole city has a revival and, sub and, and submits to God and repents of their evil. He struggles with it. Now, I would say that the struggle and the fact that it's even written down might give us a little clue as to if this lesson eventually fully permeated Jonah's heart. Had it not, I don't know you'd have ever heard the story of the prophet Jonah. 
But I think God did break through into his heart at some point. Some people seen the conflict. Here's a guy in chapter two saying God can save whoever he wants and in chapter four saying I'm so mad that you saved whoever you wanted to. Some people in seeing that conflict say that must not be what's happening in chapter two. He, he probably isn't even celebrating or at best it's hypocritical. But I think what we're seeing is the complexity of the human heart. Don't you feel that complexity sometimes? God, you can save anyone, you can do anything, you can reach anyone, and then a minute or two later, man, I'm so mad at that group of people, and I'm so upset about them, and I'm so, we're just the same way. We vacillate wildly between revelation and blindness, love and anger, grace and law. And here's the deal. Like Jonah, we so often see the grace of God for ourselves, but have a harder time seeing it for others. When we're tempted, when we struggle, when we do something bad, what do we do? We go to the Bible, we see that his grace and mercy is new every single day. We confess our trespasses to him and his grace. He cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. We're able to preach it to ourselves, but it's a little more slow going for us to proclaim it for others. What this tells me is that we as human beings need constant exposures to God's grace. We have to constantly be exposed to it because the human heart is prone to law and judgment, so we need to be constantly exposed to God's nature. It's so antithetical to what we're naturally like. Uh, when cancer is treated with chemotherapy, multiple rounds are required, right? You don't go in once, you go in many times. There are many exposures to try to kill that cancer, and our hard hearts require ongoing rounds of God's grace. That's part of the reason that we need church gatherings and small group gatherings and worship songs and sermons. We need constant reminders of God's grace because we will constantly be pulled in the opposite direction. So Jonah here became a recipient of God's grace. He was revitalized in it in this moment. And my prayer is that we also would grow in our understanding of God's grace and what it does to our lives. I'd like to close with a quotation from Pastor Chuck Smith, actually, the pastor of the First Calvary Chapel. He said, grace transforms desolate and bleak plains into rich green pastures. It changes grit your teeth duty into loving, enthusiastic service. It exchanges the tears and guilt of our own failed efforts for the eternal thrill and laughter of freely offered pleasures at the right hand of God. Grace changes everything.